Section 5 of Natural Theology by William Paley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 4 of the Succession of Plants and Animals. The generation of the animal no more accounts for the contrivance of the eye or ear than, upon the supposition stated in a preceding chapter, the production of a watch by the motion and mechanism of a former watch would account for the skill and intention evidenced in the watch so produced. Then it would account for the disposition of the wheels, the catching of their teeth, the relation of the several parts of the works to one another and to their common end, for the suitableness of their forms and places to their offices, for their connection, their operation, and the useful result of that operation. I do insist most strenuously upon the correctness of this comparison, that it holds as to every mode of specific propagation, and that whatever was true of the watch, under the hypothesis above mentioned, is true of plants and animals. 1. To begin with the fructification of plants. Can it be doubted but that the seed contains a particular organization? Whether a latent plantule with the means of temporary nutrition, or whatever else it be, it encloses an organization suited to the germination of a new plant. Has the plant which produced the seed anything more to do with that organization than the watch would have had to do with the structure of the watch which was produced in the course of its mechanical movement? I mean, has it anything at all to do with the contrivance? The maker and contriver of one watch, when he inserted within it a mechanism suited to the production of another watch, was in truth the maker and contriver of that other watch. All the properties of the new watch were to be referred to his agency. The design manifested in it to his intention, the art to him as the artist, the collocation of each part to his placing, the action, effect, and use to his counsel, intelligence, and workmanship. In producing it by the intervention of a former watch, he was only working by one set of tools instead of another. So it is with the plant and the seed produced by it. Can any distinction be assigned between the two cases, between the producing watch and the producing plant? Both passive, unconscious substances, both by the organization which was given to them, producing their like, without understanding or design. Both, that is, instruments. 2. From plants we may proceed to oviparous animals, from seeds to eggs. Now I say that the bird has the same concern in the formation of the egg which she lays, as the plant has in that of the seed which it drops, and no other nor greater. The internal constitution of the egg is as much a secret to the hen as if the hen were inanimate. Her will cannot alter it, or change a single feather of the chick. She can neither foresee nor determine of which sex her brood shall be, or how many of either. Yet the thing produced shall be, from the first, very different in its make, according to the sex which it bears. So far, therefore, from adapting the means, she is not beforehand apprised of the effect. If there be concealed within that smooth shell a provision and a preparation for the production and nourishment of a new animal, they are not of her providing or preparing. If there be contrivance, it is none of hers. Although, therefore, there be the difference of life and perceptivity between the animal and the plant, it is a difference which enters not into the account. It is a foreign circumstance. It is a difference of properties not employed. The animal function and the vegetable function are alike destitute of any design which can operate upon the form of the thing produced. The plant has no design in producing the seed, no comprehension of the nature or use of what it produces. The bird, with respect to its egg, is not above the plant with respect to its seed. Neither the one nor the other bears that sort of relation to what proceeds from them, which a joiner does to the chair which he makes. 
Now a cause which bears this relation to the effect is what we want, in order to account for the suitableness of means to an end, the fitness and sitting of one thing to another, and this cause the parent plant or animal does not supply. It is further observable, concerning the propagation of plants and animals, that the apparatus employed exhibits no resemblance to the thing produced, in this respect holding an analogy with instruments and tools of art. The filaments, anthery, and stigmata of flowers bear no more resemblance to the young plant, or even to the seed, which is formed by their intervention, than a chisel or a plane does to a table or a chair. What then are the filaments, anthery, and stigma of plants but instruments, strictly so called? 3. We may advance from animals which bring forth eggs to animals which bring forth their young alive, and of this latter class from the lowest to the highest, from irrational to rational life, from brutes to the human species, without perceiving, as we proceed, any alteration whatever in the terms of the comparison. The rational animal does not produce its offspring with more certainty or success than the irrational animal. A man than a quadruped, a quadruped than a bird, nor, for we may follow the gradation through its whole scale, a bird than a plant, nor a plant than a watch, a piece of dead mechanism would do, upon the supposition which has already so often been repeated. Rationality, therefore, has nothing to do in the business. If an account must be given of the contrivance which we observe, if it be demanded whence arose either the contrivance by which the young animal is produced, or the contrivance manifested in the young animal itself, it is not from the reason of the parent that any such account can be drawn. He is the cause of his offspring in the same sense as that in which a gardener is the cause of the tulip which grows upon his parterre, and in no other. We admire the flower, we examine the plant, we perceive the conduciveness of many of its parts to their end and office. We observe a provision for its nourishment, growth, protection, and fecundity, but we never think of the gardener in all this. We attribute nothing of this to his agency. Yet it may still be true that without the gardener we should not have had the tulip. Just so it is with the succession of animals even of the highest order. For the contrivance discovered in the structure of the thing produced, we want a contriver. The parent is not that contriver. His consciousness decides that question. He is in total ignorance why that which is produced took its present form rather than any other. It is for him only to be astonished by the effect. We can no more look, therefore, to the intelligence of the parent animal for what we are in search of, a cause of relation and of subserviency of parts to their use, which relation and subserviency we see in the procreated body, then we can refer the internal conformation of an acorn to the intelligence of the oak from which it dropped, or the structure of the watch to the intelligence of the watch which produced it, there being no difference, as far as argument is concerned, between an intelligence which is not exerted and an intelligence which does not exist. CHAPTER five, APPLICATION OF THE ARGUMENT CONTINUED Every observation which was made in our first chapter concerning the watch may be repeated with strict propriety concerning the eye, concerning animals, concerning plants, concerning, indeed, all the organized parts of the works of nature, as, one, when we are inquiring simply after the existence of an intelligent creator, imperfection, inaccuracy, liability to disorder, occasional irregularities may subsist in a considerable degree, without inducing any doubt into the question. Just as a watch may frequently go wrong, seldom perhaps exactly right, may be faulty in some parts, defective in some, without the smallest ground of suspicion from thence arising that it was not a watch, not made, or not made for the purpose ascribed to it. When faults are pointed out, and when a question is started concerning the skill of the artist, 
or dexterity with which the work is executed, then, indeed, in order to defend these qualities from accusation, we must be able either to expose some intractableness and imperfection in the materials, or point out some invincible difficulty in the execution, into which imperfection and difficulty the matter of complaint may be resolved. Or, if we cannot do this, we must adduce such specimens of consummate art and contrivance proceeding from the same hand, as may convince the inquirer of the existence, in the case before him, of impediments like those which we have mentioned, although what from the nature of the case is very likely to happen, they be unknown and unperceived by him. This we must do in order to vindicate the artist's skill, or, at least, the perfection of it. As we must also judge of his intention, and of the provisions employed in fulfilling that intention, not from an instance in which they fail, but from the great plurality of instances in which they succeed. But, after all, these are different questions from the question of the artist's existence, or, which is the same, whether the thing before us be a work of art or not. And the questions ought always to be kept separate in the mind. So likewise it is in the works of nature. Irregularities and imperfections are of little or no weight in the consideration when that consideration relates simply to the existence of a creator. When the argument respects his attributes, they are of weight, but are then to be taken in conjunction, the attention is not to rest upon them, but they are to be taken in conjunction, with the unexceptionable evidences which we possess of skill, power, and benevolence displayed in other instances, which evidences may, in strength, number, and variety, be such, and may so overpower apparent blemishes, as to induce us, upon the most reasonable ground, to believe that these last ought to be referred to some cause, though we be ignorant of it, other than defect of knowledge or of benevolence in the author. 2. There may be also parts of plants and animals, as they were supposed to be of the watch, of which, in some instances, the operation, in others, the use is unknown. These form different cases, for the operation may be unknown, yet the use be certain. Thus it is with the lungs of animals. It does not, I think, appear that we are acquainted with the action of the air upon the blood, or in what manner that action is communicated by the lungs. Yet we find that a very short suspension of their office destroys the life of the animal. In this case, therefore, we may be said to know the use, nay, we experience the necessity, of the organ, though we be ignorant of its operation. Nearly the same thing may be observed of what is called the lymphatic system. We suffer grievous inconveniences from its disorder, without being informed of the office which it sustains in the economy of our bodies. There may possibly also be some few examples of the second class, in which not only the operation is unknown, but in which experiments may seem to prove that the part is not necessary, or may leave a doubt how far it is even useful to the plant or animal in which it is found. This is said to be the case with the spleen, which has been extracted from dogs without any sensible injury to their vital functions. Instances of the former kind, namely in which we cannot explain the operation, may be numerous, for they will be so in proportion to our ignorance. They will be more or fewer to different persons and in different stages of science. Every improvement of knowledge diminishes their number. There is hardly, perhaps, a year passes that does not, in the works of nature, bring some operation, or some mode of operation, to light which was before undiscovered, probably unsuspected. Instances of the second kind, namely, where the part appears to be totally useless, I believe to be extremely rare. Compared with the number of those of which the use is evident, they are beneath any assignable proportion, and perhaps have never been submitted to a trial and examination sufficiently accurate long enough continued, or often enough repeated. No accounts which I have seen are satisfactory. The mutilated animal may live and grow fat, as was the case of the dog deprived of its spleen, 
yet may be defective in some other of its functions, which, whether they can all, or in what degree of vigor and perfection be performed, or how long preserved without the extirpated organ, does not seem to be ascertained by experiment. But to this case, even were it fully made out, may be applied the consideration which we suggested concerning the watch, viz. that these superfluous parts do not negative the reasoning which we instituted concerning those parts which are useful, and of which we know the use. The indication of contrivance, with respect to them, remains as it was before. 3. One atheistic way of replying to our observations upon the works of nature, and to the proofs of a deity which we think that we perceive in them, is to tell us that all which we see must necessarily have had some form, and that it might as well be its present form as any other. Let us now apply this answer to the eye, as we did before to the watch. Something or other must have occupied that place in the animal's head, must have filled up, we will say, that socket. We will say also that it must have been of that sort of substance which we call animal substance, as flesh, bone, membrane, cartilage, etc., but that it should have been an eye, knowing as we do what an eye comprehends, viz., that it should have consisted, first, of a series of transparent lenses, very different, by the by, even in their substance, from the opaque materials of which the rest of the body is, in general at least, composed, and with which the whole of its surface, this single portion of it accepted, is covered. Secondly, of a black cloth or canvas, the only membrane of the body which is black, spread out behind these lenses, so as to receive the image formed by pencils of light transmitted through them and placed at the precise geometrical distance at which, and at which alone, a distinct image could be formed, namely, at the concourse of the refracted rays. Thirdly, of a large nerve communicating between this membrane and the brain, without which the action of light upon the membrane, however modified by the organ, would be lost to the purposes of sensation. That this fortunate conformation of parts should have been the lot, not of one individual out of many thousand individuals, like the great prize in a lottery, or like some singularity in nature, but the happy chance of a whole species, nor of one species out of many thousand species with which we are acquainted, but of by far the greatest number of all that exist, and that under varieties not casual or capricious, but bearing marks of being suited to their respective exigencies, that all this should have taken place merely because something must have occupied those points in every animal's forehead, or that all this should be thought to be accounted for by the short answer, that whatever was there must have had some form or other, is too absurd to be made more so by any augmentation. We are not contented with this answer, we find no satisfaction in it, by way of accounting for appearances of organization far short of those of the eye, such as we observe in fossil shells, petrified bones, or other substances which bear the vestiges of animal or vegetable recrements, but which, either in respect of utility, or of the situation in which they are discovered, may seem accidental enough. It is no way of accounting even for these things to say that the stone, for instance, which is shown us, supposing the question to be concerning a petrification, must have contained some internal conformation or other, nor does it mend the answer to add, with respect to the singularity of the conformation, that, after the event, it is no longer to be computed what the chances were against it. This is always to be computed when the question is whether an useful or imitative conformation be the produce of chance or not. I desire no greater certainty in reasoning than that by which chance is excluded from the present disposition of the natural world. Universal experience is against it. What does chance ever do for us? In the human body, for instance, chance, i.e., the operation of causes without design, may produce a wen, a wart, a mole, a pimple, but never an eye. 
amongst inanimate substances, a clod, a pebble, a liquid drop, might be, but never was a watch, a telescope, an organized body of any kind, answering a valuable purpose by a complicated mechanism, the effect of chance. In no assignable instance hath such a thing existed without intention somewhere. 4. There is another answer which has the same effect as the resolving of things into chance, which answer would persuade us to believe that the eye, the animal to which it belongs, every other animal, every plant, indeed every organized body which we see, are only so many out of the possible varieties and combinations of being which the lapse of infinite ages has brought into existence, that the present world is the relict of that variety. Millions of other bodily forms and other species having perished, being by the defect of their constitution incapable of preservation, or of continuance by generation. Now there is no foundation whatever for this conjecture in anything which we observe in the works of nature. No such experiments are going on at present, no such energy operates as that which is here supposed, and which should be constantly pushing into existence new varieties of beings, nor are there any appearances to support an opinion that every possible combination of vegetable or animal structure has formerly been tried. Multitudes of confirmations, both of vegetables and animals, may be conceived capable of existence and succession which yet do not exist. Perhaps almost as many forms of plants might have been found in the fields as figures of plants can be delineated upon paper. A countless variety of animals might have existed which do not exist. Upon the supposition here stated, we should see unicorns and mermaids, sylphs and centaurs, the fancies of painters and the fables of poets realized by examples or if it be alleged that these may transgress the limits of possible life and propagation, we might at least have notions of human beings without nails upon their fingers, with more or fewer fingers and toes than ten, some with one eye, others with one ear, with one nostril, or without the sense of smelling at all. All these and a thousand other imaginable varieties might live and propagate. We may modify any one species many different ways, all consistent with life, and with the actions necessary to preservation, although affording different degrees of conveniency and enjoyment to the animal. And if we carry these modifications through the different species which are known to subsist, their number would be incalculable. No reason can be given why, if these depurdits ever existed, they have now disappeared. Yet, if all possible existences have been tried, they must have formed part of the catalogue. But, moreover, the division of organized substances into animals and vegetables, and the distribution and subdistribution of each into genera and species, which distribution is not an arbitrary act of the mind, but is founded in the order which prevails in external nature, appear to me to contradict the supposition of the present world being the remains of an indefinite variety of existences, of a variety which rejects all plan. The hypothesis teaches that every possible variety of being hath, at one time or other, found its way into existence, by what cause or in what manner is not said, and that those which were badly formed perished, but how or why those which survive should be cast, as we see that plants and animals are cast, into regular classes, the hypothesis does not explain, or rather the hypothesis is inconsistent with this phenomenon. The hypothesis, indeed, is hardly deserving of the consideration which we have given to it. What should we think of a man who, because we had never ourselves seen watches, telescopes, stocking mills, steam engines, etc., made, knew not how they were made, or could prove by testimony when they were made, or by whom, would have us believe that these machines, instead of deriving their curious structures from the thought and design of their inventors and contrivers, 
in truth derive them from no other origin than this viz that a mass of metals and other materials having run when melted into all possible figures and combined themselves in all possible forms and shapes and proportions these things which we see are what were left from the accident as best worth preserving and as such are become the remaining stock of a magazine which at one time or other has by this means contained every mechanism useful and useless convenient and inconvenient into which such materials could be thrown i cannot distinguish the hypothesis as applied to the works of nature from this solution which no one would accept as applied to a collection of machines five to the marks of contrivance discoverable in animal bodies and to the argument deduced from them in proof of design and of a designing creator this turn is sometimes attempted to be given viz that the parts were not intended for the use but that the use arose out of the parts this distinction is intelligible a cabinet-maker rubs his mahogany with fish-skin yet it would be too much to assert that the skin of the dogfish was made rough and granulated on purpose for the polishing of wood and the use of cabinet-makers therefore the distinction is intelligible but i think that there is very little place for it in the works of nature when roundly and generally affirmed of them as it hath sometimes been it amounts to such another stretch of assertion as it would be to say that all the implements of the cabinet-maker's workshop as well as his fish-skin were substances accidentally configurated which he had picked up and converted to his use that his adzes saws planes and gimblets were not made as we suppose to hew cut smooth shape out or bore wood with but that these things being made no matter with what design or whether with any the cabinet-maker perceived that they were applicable to his purpose and turned them to account but again so far as this solution is attempted to be applied to those parts of animals the action of which does not depend upon the will of the animal it is fraught with still more evident absurdity is it possible to believe that the eye was formed without any regard to vision that it was the animal itself which found out that though formed with no such intention it would serve to see with and that the use of the eye as an organ of sight resulted from this discovery and the animal's application of it the same question may be asked of the ear the same of all the senses none of the senses fundamentally depend upon the election of the animal consequently neither upon his sagacity nor his experience it is the impression which objects make upon them that constitutes their use under that impression he is passive he may bring objects to the sense or within its reach he may select these objects but over the impression itself he has no power or very little and that properly is the sense secondly there are many parts of animal bodies which seem to depend upon the will of the animal in a greater degree than the senses do and yet with respect to which this solution is equally unsatisfactory if we apply the solution to the human body for instance it forms itself into questions upon which no reasonable mind can doubt such as whether the teeth were made expressly for the mastication of food the feet for walking the hands for holding or whether these things being as they are being in fact in the animal's possession his own ingenuity taught him that they were convertible to these purposes though no such purposes were contemplated in their formation all that there is of the appearance of reason in this way of considering the subject is that in some cases the organization seems to determine the habits of the animal and its choice to a particular mode of life which in a certain sense may be called the use arising out of the part now to all the instances in which there is any place for this suggestion it may be replied that the organization determines the animal to habits beneficial and salutary to itself and that this effect would not be seen so regularly to follow 
if the several organizations did not bear a concerted and contrived relation to the substance by which the animal was surrounded they would otherwise be capacities without objects powers without employment the web foot determines you say the duck to swim but what would that avail if there were no water to swim in the strong hooked bill and sharp talons of one species of bird determine it to prey upon animals the soft straight bill and weak claws of another species determine it to pick up seeds but neither determination could take effect in providing for the sustenance of the birds if animal bodies and vegetable seeds did not lie within their reach the peculiar conformation of the bill and tongue and claws of the woodpecker determines that bird to search for his food amongst the insects lodged behind the bark or in the wood of decayed trees but what would this profit him if there were no trees no decayed trees no insects lodged under their bark or in their trunk the proboscis with which the bee is furnished determines him to seek for honey but what would that signify if flowers supplied none faculties thrown down upon animals at random and without reference to the objects amidst which they are placed would not produce to them the services and benefits which we see and if there be that reference then there is intention lastly the solution fails entirely when applied to plants the parts of plants answer their uses without any concurrence from the will or choice of the plant six others have chosen to refer everything to a principle of order in nature a principle of order is the word but what is meant by a principle of order as different from an intelligent creator has not been explained either by definition or example and without such explanation it should seem to be a mere substitution of words for reasons names for causes order itself is only the adaptation of means to an end a principle of order therefore can only signify the mind and intention which so adapts them or were it capable of being explained in any other sense is there any experience any analogy to sustain it was a watch ever produced by a principle of order and why might not a watch be so produced as well as an eye furthermore a principle of order acting blindly and without choice is negatived by the observation that order is not universal which it would be if it issued from a constant and necessary principle nor indiscriminate which it would be if it issued from an unintelligent principle where order is wanted there we find it where order is not wanted i e where if it prevailed it would be useless there we do not find it in the structure of the eye for we adhere to our example in the figure and position of its several parts the most exact order is maintained in the forms of rocks and mountains in the lines which bound the coasts of continents and islands in the shape of bays and promontories no order whatever is perceived because it would have been superfluous no useful purpose would have arisen from moulding rocks and mountains into regular solids bounding the channel of the ocean by geometrical curves or from the map of the world resembling a table of diagrams in euclid's elements or simpson's conic sections seven lastly the confidence which we place in our observations upon the works of nature in the marks which we discover of contrivance choice and design and in our reasoning upon the proofs afforded us ought not to be shaken as it is sometimes attempted to be done by bringing forward to our view our own ignorance or rather the general imperfections of our knowledge of nature nor in many cases ought this consideration to affect us even when it respects some parts of the subject immediately under our notice true fortitude of understanding consists in not suffering what we know to be disturbed by what we do not know if we perceive an useful end and means adapted to that end we perceive enough for our conclusion if these things be clear no matter what is obscure the argument is finished for instance 
if the utility of vision to the animal which enjoys it and the adaptation of the eye to this office be evident and certain and i can mention nothing which is more so ought it to prejudice the inference which we draw from these premises that we cannot explain the use of the spleen nay more if there be parts of the eye viz the cornea the crystalline the retina in their substance figure and position manifestly suited to the formation of an image by the refraction of rays of light at least as manifestly as the glasses and tubes of a dioptric telescope are suited to that purpose it concerns not the proof which these afford of design and of a designer that there may perhaps be other parts certain muscles for instance or nerves in the same eye of the agency or effect of which we can give no account any more than we should be inclined to doubt or ought to doubt about the construction of a telescope viz for what purpose it was constructed or whether it were constructed at all because there belonged to it certain screws and pins the use or action of which we did not comprehend i take it to be a general way of infusing doubts and scruples into the mind to recall to its own ignorance its own imbecility to tell us that upon these subjects we know little that little imperfectly or rather that we know nothing properly about the matter these suggestions so fall in with our consciousness as sometimes to produce a general distrust of our faculties and our conclusions but this is an unfounded jealousy the uncertainty of one thing does not necessarily affect the certainty of another thing our ignorance of many points need not suspend our assurance of a few before we yield in any particular instance to the scepticism which this sort of insinuation would induce we ought accurately to ascertain whether our ignorance or doubt concern those precise points upon which our conclusion rests other points are nothing our ignorance of other points may be of no consequence to these though they be points in various respects of great importance a just reasoner removes from his consideration not only what he knows but what he does not know touching matters not strictly connected with his argument i e not forming the very steps of his deduction beyond these his knowledge and his ignorance are alike irrelative end of section five